0: Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Good morning. <clears throat> Wait, that didn't sound nice. That sounded all very chesty. Good morning. I'm really okay. My name is Andrea Simontov and thank you for listening in this morning on... Pull up a chair. Israel News Talk Radio. Really, um, I realize I'm looking in, I'm looking who's listening in today. And it's not morning all over. Let's see, we have listeners in today. This is the romp. We're taking care of business. Taking care of business. We're going to say good morning, good evening, good night to anybody who's with us in the United States. I always, I'm never surprised to see Canada, but I'm always grateful. And we have Boquitola Reis Israel. Nice day. It's cooling off, right, guys? Mexico is with us. Hello, Mexico. China is listening in. Very happy to have you. And Germany. Thank you. Anyone else listening in, I will indeed call them out, shout them out, because it's a grateful moment, and grateful. I'm grateful to spend this time together. Today's show, I think I called it. I don't know. I kind of always post it on Facebook, and then... <laughs> I forget. I forget what the name of the show was. But today I think it's standing at the gates. And anybody who is following our holy Jewish calendar knows exactly what I mean. We're standing at the gates of heaven. We're hoping that our tefillot, our prayers, really open up a good spot for us in the year to come. And of course, when we get to the Devar Torah section, the section of Torah that we talk toward the end of the program, I hope we'll cover a lot of familiar ground and not imbue anybody with terror, fear, and sadness, but indeed happiness, inspiration, hope, and expectations. So that is what we are standing at. It is the last Sabbath Shabbat Sof, before Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the High Holy Days. Okay. Um, I was just thinking, what is the kind of thing that kind of inspire you know, inspires my my thoughts before I put down the notes? Things I like to share with you, things that make me laugh, things that make me do a little head scratching. You know, as I said, we don't do politics and we're certainly not going to mar our pristine togetherness this morning with anything as icky and vulgarly human as the political situation. I was thinking to myself, you know, what keeps us young? What keeps us vibrant? As many of you know, I have uh, an elderly mother, Baruch Hashem, she's going to soon be turning 94 with God's help and that she has better days and worse days and suddenly suddenly you know I was very sad I mean she seemed so kind of morose and kind of just taking up life space waiting for the inevitable and lo and behold she started to go to gym class where they have gym they sit in chairs and they do she looks forward to this class it's the looking forward and why didn't she go before Because she never read the program. And I thought about this are we reading the program? What is the program that's out there that's available? And I thought to myself, what am I not noticing? Yesterday, I had to go to another city. I needed something for my house. It was very far away. And I drove, but I drove through some, stuck in a lot of traffic in Jerusalem, of course, duh. And um, I found myself sitting, idling in traffic, and suddenly, I noticed a driveway on a a, a kind of a, a moderately busy thoroughfare that I had never noticed before. I have to tell you, my reaction to noticing this driveway was, I could have like just, yeah, asthma, so what? But it suddenly dawned on me: What else am I missing? There's people. Look at that. There's houses in there. Down that driveway, sort of houses. They were built along it, and people. And I just kept thinking about the plants in the window there. And then, as I continued to drive, I passed through a uh, what is deemed to be what we call a charedi neighborhood, an ultra Orthodox neighborhood. And it's not, you know, it's not my lifestyle. That is, it's not my hashkafa, my outlook. Um, But I'm aware of the neighborhood. And suddenly I saw in a big parking lot, many, many of these Haredi children, mostly boys, but there were some girls there. And then I saw mixed in a bunch of what we call datilumi, national religious children. Now, I was in traffic. I could have sped by. I don't know why I even noticed. And probably my noticing was a little bit dangerous on the road. And I thought to myself, what are those kids all doing together? It's not a typical look here in Israel. You see, the groups seem to be, sadly, very often separate. And then I noticed. They were all together. I said, are they shopping? There seemed to have been piles. I didn't understand And then I saw they were standing shoulder to to shoulder, all these children from different backgrounds, creating food baskets and food packages for the poor. There is so much. I don't have to say more about that. Just to sit with that a moment. So much is there to notice. If we have children that are saying, mommy, daddy, grandpa, grandma, I'm bored, or we ourselves are saying, I'm bored. We are missing the big picture. It is a word that needs to be banished from our vocabulary. There is so much to notice, so much to partake of, and so much with so little time. So my friends, I really, I just love that. And I thought to myself, as I'm getting, my senses are becoming heightened, as I'm getting ready to begin the prayers for Rosh Hashanah as all of us. And sometimes all we have to do is just take notice of what is going on around us. And that alone can probably creak open the doors of heaven just a tad. Came across a lovely, piece of well two poems i want to i want to share with you this morning you know i said if i do, if something is true if something is real it doesn't have to have the name rabbi before the author i don't even know actually one of these does have an author's name a non-jewish woman wrote wrote a poem called i wish i knew but we'll get to that in a moment if something is real if something is true if something hits you in that visceral part of the belly and makes you wince and go Mm, You know, that kind of ping of the tears behind the eyes. We can be pretty sure it's consistent with Torah. All right. If something makes us have to negotiate and say, well, you know, maybe. um, It probably isn't. So came across my desk recently. You never really know. Very funny. Both of these poems actually have the same time. So you never really know the true impact you have on those around you. You never know how much someone needed that smile you gave them. You never know how much your kindness turned someone's entire life around. You never know how much someone needed that long hug or deep talk. So don't wait to be kind. Don't wait for someone else to be kind first. Don't wait for better circumstances or for someone to change. Just be kind, because you never know how much someone needs it. So true. When we really are living our best lives, we will come across those people who say to us, You'll never know how much it meant to me when you fill in the blank. Baruch Hashem, bless God. It has happened to me several times. And each time I gasp, I gasp with the humility of never having known and with the feeling of wariness that I should never get cocky. If I could only reach out to all of those who have made massive differences in my life. Nice place to start. Okay, and in celebrating, this is the season of our eating, the season of eating. And I just love this holy, healthy, wonderful poem by a writer named Donna Ashworth. I'm going to read it quickly. I wonder if you know the work your body has done today and every day how much disease it has fought off, how many times it could have failed but battled on, but how many ways it could have broken but did not. I wonder if you know the work your body has done today and every day, and each day it has done this amazing job without your help, without your approval, your acceptance, your kindness. Each day, It has soldiered on, regardless of the constant stream of negativity pulsing its way from your brain to your cells. Not good enough, not attractive enough, not the right shape. Perhaps it is time to see your body for what it truly is, an amazing and mind-blowingly competent machine to get your soul to where it needs to be in this life, to let you live. I wonder if you know how much better you would be as a team. I wonder. I loved that. I'm going to be kind to my body today. All right, you too. When we come back, let's see. We're going to talk about a little bit of the remorse from the year behind and how we can steam clean our psyches, our souls and our attitudes to open up the gates of heaven. My name is Andrea Simontov, and I'll see you on the other side. Newstalkradio.com. Really, it is an honor, an honor. I, I just had a, a marvelous off-mic discussion with our holy engineer and um, <clears throat> wiping away the tears, tears of laughter, tears of remorse, tears of regret. It's amazing what we can do, even in just a few moments, how we can really connect to one another. And I don't know, maybe I'll share those thoughts with you another time um all right so i'm going oh business business as usual so more and more people it's been very nice i get lovely notes during the week uh andrea put me on the mailing list it's not such a constant mailing list i write a once a month article for several magazines in of all places california a place where i'm embarrassed to tell you i've never actually been to california um i've never been to Canada. You're listening to me. Let me give you travel advice. Anyway, um, but anyway, so I put anybody who wants to be on the mailing list, write to me, Andrea at com. Happy to include you in my monthly musing. I don't say musings, because it's generally a one theme article. And the other thing is, I also, anything I refer to in the show, uh, I don't make this stuff up, except when I cry. When I cry, that stuff I'm making up. But if I'm talking about an article I came across or a note or a piece of poetry, um, a scientific study that piques your interest. Also, drop me a note and I will send you the link to the art, the original um, source that piqued my interest. Very interactive, this show. I told you. <laughs> I'm lonely. We're all friends. Okay. Several years ago, um, a friend was visiting me Uh, from California, a place I hadn't been. And um, she said something which was so liberating to me. She said to me, I was kind of feeling sorry for myself. Gee, you know, the mortgage was coming due. Um, The car was breaking down. I really, I was nervous. I didn't understand the credit card bill or the electric bill. And she's a little bit older than me. And she said to me, well, you know, my husband... John and I we you know we could never retire and she said it was such a cheery voice and I realized I had been feeling very sorry for myself because all around me I was looking at that dangerous that dangerous aberration called social media and all around me those who I graduated from high school with in 1973 do the math anyway I was a child prodigy anyway um they're retirement pictures and I'm thinking retirement pictures I'm checking you know chicken wings versus I don't know tofu and she said well we can never retire and I thought well she said that and it didn't sound embarrassing it sounded nice it sounded fine it sounded like ah a decision and then another client came to me this week someone with whom I've I've had actually a professional relationship with years and the two of us were laughing about how life shifts had us still at this age negotiating our money trying to figure out our finances could we finance a vacation could we get a new couch um could we reupholster something um why you know how is it that people are managing and It was just a very safe place to be. And I was thinking about how um, this last friend said this about retiring. And suddenly I came across an article, and I'll tell you right now, it happened to have been from The Guardian. And it was an article about the fallacy of retirement, about how so many people who believed that they would retire would have this kind of happy sailing on the high seas life are finding themselves working at 65, 75, and even 85, much to their surprise, to many of them, to their chagrin. And it was just very, the expectations, we kind of read these narratives, and we say, well, this is the way it has to be. And I realized, what was it? We, we There's a lot of mantras that say you can't love others until you love yourself. Well, we're standing at the season of forgiveness. How can we expect forgiveness from others if we can't forgive ourselves? Forgive ourselves for not having reached that financial brass ring. Forgive ourselves for not being as accomplished as we might have projected once. Forgiving ourselves for not being the right shape or the right level of social attractiveness, forgiving ourselves. And um, I'm just trying to think, hold on, in this article, stay with me, we're very close. There's a new name for this. Um, oh, so this this article started and I kept thinking about it in terms of forgiveness. And I'm talking on a very, it's very, very personal what I'm sharing with you right now. And, um, and yet it's coming from a very healthy place. So here was this opening quote and said, "I've always thrown myself into work, and now it keeps me alive. The over 65s are forced to join the Great Unretirement." And of course, the article goes on to describe um, how people are looking for work, but those of us in a certain age group who have been looking for additional work know that there is something. The biggest ism of all, the biggest secret ism is something called ageism. And this new phenomenon is called the Great Unretirement. And um, many of us listening in, many of us sharing these experiences and finding ourselves working, I'm going to say something and it's very, very off script. I mentioned before. My mother starting to exercise and looking forward to this every day. Well, I have to tell you something. When I look at the day ahead and I see, I'm having a birthday next week, actually, now that I think about it. When I see my client list, when I see my task list, when I see all the things that I have to do, it's a matter of attitude, how you look at it. Do we sigh and weep and feel sorry for ourselves? Or do we say, oh my gosh, I can work. I can interact. I can list. And I can do, do, do. So again, if somebody makes you feel bad, if something makes you feel bad, if you're at a station of life where you're feeling sorry for yourself, I'm going to tell you something. Fix it. Change it. It really is a matter of attitude. And believe me, we're not having a a Richard Simmons or Dr. Phil moment. It's real life. A wonderful, wonderful, uh, let's see, another one. I very frequently quote my never met a Facebook friend of mine named Afshin Imrani. He's a physician, a physician. In Los Angeles, he really posts the best stuff. And he wrote a line, which I'm going to use as my mantra for the day. And Dr. Rani writes, Dear self, don't stress over how your life is going to turn out. Nobody has it all figured out. No one knows. Only the one who made you knows what will happen. So live your life the best way you can and attach your heart to the one who matters most. Oh, dear God, help us realize that everything will work out in the end, no matter how long we've been suffering, how long we've been supplicating. Let us remember that only you can change the most hopeless situation to the best moments of our lives. Bring in the light, the health, the love, the peace, and the prosperity for all. That is my attitude at working at 66, 67, 68, 69, 70. I'd be very interesting. I'd be very interesting. I'd be very interested. That was like a very egocentric Freudian slip. Um, To know your thoughts about this. Uh, Here's an organization called Restless. Restless a digital community that supports the over 50s. Okay, I love it. Write to me, Andrea at Israel News Talk Radio. Tell me what you're working at. Tell me how you thought that you would once retire and that changed. Okay, let's see. Enough with retirement, a little bit boring. We're going to talk about, oh yeah, a lot of fallacies. You know that 10,000, those 10,000 steps, how many of those wristwatches did you buy to measure your steps? And if you only make it to 8,000, you feel like a failure. Well, boys and girls, it has been proven not just in the New York Post, but even more reputable is something more reputable than the New York Post. Um, More reputable um, periodicals have said that the 10,000 steps a day um, kind of mantra is a fallacy. It was an advertising campaign out of Japan was they were probably uh, creating a new uh, electronic tool. It's not true that you do 8,000, 7,000, you're good. Drinking eight glasses of water a day being crucial. Not true. Drink what you're thirsty. Eating late at night causes weight gain. Calories are calories. Breakfast is the most important meal. The evidence is conflicting. It's really a lot of new stuff is coming out and we all become victims of that. But the one thing before we go off the air, I remember people screaming, you should only eat organic and only eat organic. Organic is good for you. It's probably better for you. But you know what? Fruits and vegetables in abundance, wherever you get them, good for you. My name is Andrea Simontov. When we come back, we'll talk Torah. And we're back. Andrea Simintov, pull up a chair, IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. And I also, we have some more listeners in today. Very excited to learn that um, Iran is listening with us this morning. Jamaica is with us. Jamaica, you haven't been here for a while. Good morning. And Brazil is with us. Very nice. Okay. So, The community grows. And I forgot one more thing. Taking care of business, got a nice note. Actually, it was a voice note this week from my friend Austin. And I promised him that I would address something. Uh, We were talking about Jewish dress, i.e. the kippah, i.e. the tzitzit, the ritual fringes that the men wear, um, mostly, well, it depends on where you're holding, but mostly outside of the clothing, sometimes inside. And I just wanted to talk a little bit, just a moment to talk about the uniform. And um, coming from a personal place, there's something lovely about the uniform that should, and I'm very cautious about should, would, and could words, but we would hope that those in uniform would never shame the uniform. We hear so much, deal about police corruption. And those of us who grew up, I know, in the 50s, in the 60s, your corner policeman, your corner control- patrolman, he knew your name and he would keep you safe. And somehow stories of ugly, ugly interactions with police kind of confuse those of us who were raised to think of the police as our, our friend. We know without going into detail, many people in religious garb, uh, whether it be, um, you know, the Christian collars or what do they call, hasaks, correct me if I'm wrong, and rabbinical garb, when they are in uniform and doing something which is antithetical to holy behavior, it causes a terrible stain. It's the ultimate chilul Hashem, separation from our connectedness to heaven. So it's the same thing. If one was a kipa, if one was tzitzis, if you are a woman who chooses to cover your, ho- your head, your hair in a variety of attractive ways, it adds an extra dose of responsibility. If one is dressed poorly, dressed in ways that are not modest, the facts are that expectations are different than those who are dressed in religious clothing. So before we put the kippah on our heads, the yarmulga, before we wear our ritual fringes, before we wrap our heads in a very attractive tichel or don a beautiful scheitel, a wig to cover our natural hair, remember it's not just clothing. It's a statement. And um, it probably goes for regular clothing as well. Okay. Have I covered that well enough, Austin? Thank you. This week's Parsha. Wow, wow, wow. The last Parsha before Rosh Hashanah, Sunday night. I hope all of you aren't going crazy and concentrating more on the prayer than on the meatballs. All right? Because... The food will be good enough. The conversations around the the table should be holy conversations. We're missing the point if we use it to discuss the latest garbage coming out of Hollywood or what our neighbor did to us that was inappropriate or the way they parked their car or the condition of their car. Let's try to keep, we'll be in our holy garb. Let's try to meet the, um, the expectations. So in this week's reading of the Torah, it describes so perfectly as we're standing, as we're standing, the last parsha. as we're standing at the gates of heaven, it talks about the eternal binding covenant between HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, and the Jewish people. This covenant has played itself over thousands of years in world history. Is that an old story? It remains valid today. The blueprint works exactly the same as on the day it was presented to the Jewish people at the end of Moshe's life, the life of Moses. It is an all-encompassing contract and it applies to every single one of the members of the Jewish people. The kings, the governors, the royalty, the woodchoppers, and the water carriers. Everyone stood shoulder to shoulder in equal importance. There were no better seats in the theater. Now, this is a remarkable It's a remarkable statement for human society, which since the beginning has always divided itself into classes according to talents, education, and financial status. I know recently I watched a brilliant, an absolutely brilliant documentary. I think it was a nine-part documentary called Daughters of Destiny, talking about children who are plucked, precious children from the families who are plucked from the lowest caste system, the untouchables in uh, the supposedly outlawed uh, system of India but still holds great prevalence and who are taught careers and and put on an education path. And I was thinking about caste system, it exists all over, not even um, only in, Uh, primitive sections of India, you know, the differences of people always existed, even within Jewish society. But the covenant of which we speak is not affected by the societal norms and differences that every generation of Jewish people exhibited. The Torah is not present. It doesn't present for us this kind of um, utopian idea of a classless society it's not, it's not socialism, where equality exists among all members of a certain nation or group. This kind of an idea, according to Rabbi Wine, I love his term, it says, flies in the face of human nature and behavior. But the Torah does enlighten us to the fact that there is an overarching covenant that binds all Jews, regardless of station, regardless of status, regardless of their experiences. And this is the covenant that is the basis for the relationship between us and the God of Israel. You know, the Torah recognizes that life is not fair to everyone. It's, I think it's, you know, in the Western world, children learn to say, mommy Daddy first, mama, papa. In Israel, the first words out of most Israeli children's mouth is, the lo fair. It's not fair. Okay? All future attorneys, you know, they know early on that talent, we, we know. Some are more talented. Some have better opportunities. Some are born with the proverbial silver spoon in their mouths, and others are working since the age of seven. Okay? there's no economic theory or a legislative program that's ever going to change that reality. And so the Torah, you know, Yirmiyahu stated this, how do you say Yirmiyahu in English? uh, Jeremiah. Okay. That's how it is. Jeremiah stated this succinctly when he says, why should a human being complain? Um, Why should a human being complain? Is it not sufficient? that it is yet alive? Yiddishkeit, Judaism, measures people by their capacity to realize their potential. To sit and say, well, my father couldn't help me. My parents weren't rich. I couldn't get into medical school because there was a quota. Affirmative action injured me. This is the antithetical to Jewish thought. The rabbis taught us that the righteous people are judged as finely as finely as the breath of a hair. The more righteous one is, the greater the potential for performing acts of goodness. In fact, and by the way, righteousness is available to all of us. In effect, the Torah is teaching us that we are our own judges each one according to his or her higher abilities and opportunities. The question that's going to be asked of all of us is why we were not what we could have been irrespective of the achievements and the greatness we have achieved or compared to that of other human beings. It is said that when Avraham Avinu, our father Abraham, when Hashem called him, the voice called out from heaven as he was about to shacht, slice open the neck of his precious son Yitzchak. And a voice called out from heaven and it shouted out, Avraham, Avraham. Did Hashem suddenly develop a speech impediment? Ba-ba-ba, ba-ba-ba. A stutter? How could that be? We know there is not one extra word in the Torah. Every word holds weight one of the most beautiful interpretations I heard, at least it spoke to me, was that there is an impression. You know, it says we're created in, 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 in God's image. But it doesn't mean that we look like God. It's God's image of who we are, who we can be. And that image sits in heaven. And we take the years of our lives, the days, the years, and we try to hone ourselves into that lovely image that Hashem has of us in heaven. And at that moment, remember we used to play the cards on Shabbos morning. you turn over the cards, and when you had a matching set, two clubs, two hearts, something like that, you said, it's a match. Well, at that moment, as Hashem, as Avraham, as Avraham, as Abraham, demonstrated his most complete adherence to the will of God. He had reached the pinnacle of what his life was supposed to be, and it was a match. It was Avraham and Avraham. It was that straight, direct line to heaven. We all have that same opportunity. And Rabbi Wein kind of concludes with, he says, it's ironic that in world history, the Jewish people could certainly be characterized as a victim, and would probably be justified. There's that wood word again, for not being um, a contributory, a contributory force in the advancement of world civilization. <laughs> but it's the exact opposite our Nobel Prizes, our scientific, our artistic, our literary contributions to the world. When did we ever sit back and say, poor us? The most cursory view of world history shows that it's the Jewish people more than anyone else who drove forward the forces of civilization for the betterment of the human condition physically and certainly We hope spiritually, you know, Moshe, death is death is like the big scare. We all know it. Even those of us who are very, very lofty and very, very from very, very God centered. I know I myself had a very big scare this week. I, I I was supposed to have a voluntary MRI. I'm sure many of you listening in have actually had that full body MRI And I'm tough, and I've done things, crazy things in the name of sports. I've jumped off shipping containers. I've gone snorkeling. I do all the crazy stuff. And when they put me in this MRI machine voluntarily for a medical study, I I, I said, get me out. I can't do it. I can't do it. Couldn't do it. I didn't know my arms would be touching the sides. They asked me if I was claustrophobic before. I said a little bit. Couldn't do it. And suddenly, big, brave Andrea, who talks a good game of not being frightened of death as someone, really had to face my mortality that day and say, gee, what do I think of it? I felt like I was buried alive. Well, Moshe, the deal, the great Moshe, goes to his death. He goes with faith a faith that we all aspire to. But you know what the flip side he has is? Not fear. He has regret. He's not privileged to enter the land of Israel. He's being denied his life dream and his children will not succeed him in the leadership of the Jewish people. It's the case with people, you know, with all human beings and even Moshe. Nobody passes from this earth having accomplished all that was desired. Never heard of, we hear the saying, nobody on their deathbed says, I wish I said, I wish I spent more time at the office. Well, no one on their deathbed says, I achieved it all. I could not have done more. And yet, Moshe dies peacefully with God's kiss, so to speak. The kiss on his face knowing that the Torah that he taught Israel will guarantee Jewish survival as a people and will be the ultimate human force for all eternity. Moshe finds great comfort in the knowledge that all of his efforts and travails, all of his disappointments, all of his frustrations will somehow not be for naught. this parsha as we stand at the front you know there's no way we're going into the new year without me kind of lovingly chastising lovingly reaching out to my brothers and sisters who do not yet live in israel and i share with you that it's no accent and no accent um, what, what cup of coffee are we on now okay it is no accident that Parshat Nitzavim, the portion of Nitzavim that we're reading, is always read either on the Shabbos preceding the night when we first begin to recite the Slichot, that's the uh, prayers before uh, Rosh Hashanah, or on the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah. Nitzavim stresses that interlocking nature of Teshuvah, our returning to Hashem, and the gula the redemption. Those of us who live outside, just as a matter of explanation, those Jews who live outside of the land of Israel are living in Geula. Hashem returning to the land of Israel and bringing his people back to their home. This is the the definition. It seems that a lot of Western Jews perhaps may have forgotten or perhaps never even attained the complete perspective concerning our activities, the activities that require teshuva. You know, if the first step of teshuva is to recognize in what way our actions have missed the mark spiritually, but also physically, does anybody listening in who doesn't yet live in Israel Have a sense, perhaps, and I'm asking a heartfelt question, that maybe they're not where they should be. Or is perhaps, and I ask this shyly, you know, the attitude similar to that of the Jews of Poland. Um, I I heard this about a year ago, who in the era before the Shoah, the Holocaust, would say of their country, half in jest, but lovingly, laughingly, because they loved it there, Polonka. For Poland, here rests God. The sages ask, why in this week's Parsha, the Torah, in describing the ingathering of the exiles, I'm going to say it in in English, that the Lord thy God will return thy captivity and will return and gather thee from all the peoples, twice uses the word Veshav, and he will return. Um... Forgive me, I'm losing my place here. Uh, the, the, the Meshach Chachma suggests, anybody who wants that, I'll spell it out for you later, suggests that the word Vashav is repeated. It comes twice because there are two types of exiles and two types of Jews who are living in exile. The first Vashav refers to those Jews who feel the pain of the Galut, who yearn for the land of Israel. There are those Jews, these are the Jews that Hashem brings back to Israel first. But the second Vashav refers to those Jews who have settled permanently and comfortably in the Galut. I must admit, I was so happily one of those Yidin. I was really very happy. And who have no yearning for the land of Israel. Oh, they too will be gathered up and returned to Israel. But they will be the last ones brought home. This is what the Meshach says, you know, it's the beginning of that dual, um, the dual prophecy. The Jewish people have to be roused to yearn for the Geula. But even when we sense the necessity of the Geula, you know, there's a reason we're overseas. There's a reason we're spreading holiness. There is, is a reason that outside of Israel with the light of the nation, we still have to be roused further and encouraged to actually return to Israel by action and deed. Came across this. For me, this was mind-blowing. The words spoken by Rav Cook in um, the old city, Ir Artika of Yerushalayim, on the first day of Rosh Hashanah in what year? 1933. Hitler was rising in Germany. And... um, the Jews of the Yishuv, the old city, they were growing increasingly fearful of the plight of their brothers in Europe. So Rav Cook explained that there are three categories of a shofar, the ram's horn, for purposes of the mitzvah, the um, commandment of shofar blowing on Rosh Hashanah. And I must interject and say, in my beautiful neighborhood of Jerusalem, for a month already, I wake each morning and I'm hearing those who will be blowing the shofar practicing. So we're already getting, we're waking up (laughs) earlier than I sometimes want to uh, because of those practicing the beautiful shofar blowing. Okay, so the first level is a ram's horn. This is ideal, okay? If one cannot get a ram's horn, however, every other shofar is kosher except one that comes from a cow. You're going to hear in a minute why we do this kind of uh, Gemara hair splitting. Even if one cannot acquire um, any of the above, then the shofar from a cow's horn can be blown, even though it is deemed pussel or or uh, unfit for shofar blowing. But in this case, we do not make a blessing on the mitzvah. So what does this mean? Rav Cook suggests that the three degrees of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah correspond with the three levels of the shofar blasts that will herald in our redemption, namely the shofar gadol, the great shofar, the shofar benoni, the medium shofar, and the shofar katan, the small shofar. The redemption heralded by the shofar gadol will result from a yearning not simply to be redeemed, but to actively redeem the land, a yearning which derives from a powerful belief in Hashem and in supreme holiness of every grain of sand in the land of Israel. This is the kind of yearning and desire that such um, individuals as the Ramban, Rav Yehuda HaLevi, Rav Ovadia Bartanura, the students of the Vilna Gaon, and the Hasidim of the Baal Shem Tov, These are the ones who came to Israel, hearkening the call of the Shofar Gadol. So there's a second Shofar. Hello. The second Shofar calls Jews back to the land because it is our ancestral home. It is where our forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, our kings, um, and our prophets lived in Israel. We can live as free people in our land, raise our children as Jews, Jews, this is the shofar benoni, the medium shofar. And while it's not as great as the shofar gadol, we unquestionably, unquestionably, we make a bracha over it. However, Rav Cook says, he who does not respond when given the opportunity to sound the shofar gadol or the blast of the shofar benoni, Will be forced to hear the blasts from the third type of shofar. This is the shofar which the Jew haters of the world blast in our ears, persecuting and torturing us and forcing us to flee and run for our lives to Israel, as did the Jews of Germany during Rav Cook's era. But on this time of shofar, said Rav Kook, we don't make a bracha, no blessing. We pray that Hashem not bring about our redemption with the shofar katam, the shofar of tribulation, but rather sound the great shofar that summons our redemption. You know, for 2,000 years, Jews as a community, we had no opportunity to blow the shofar of redemption. Whatever our yearnings or desires, we couldn't gain entry into the land of Israel when we were being persecuted and slaughtered. We couldn't even blow the shofar katan, but were forced to flee, if even possible, from one land of persecution to another. There was no shofar katan available for the Jews of Europe 75 years ago. With the rebirth of the modern state of Israel in our time, Jews could now enter their land, but very often they could not leave the lands of their dispersion. And when they could leave, it was all often because they were thrown out like 800,000 Jews of the Arab lands or they were forced to run for their lives like the Jews not so long ago from Eastern Europe. My friends in the West, you have a rare opportunity, an exceptional opportunity, a golden opportunity. If anything can be learned from history, we should know that one day you might need that shofar katan. And if that day should ever happen, the state of Israel, because of the sacrifices of other Jews, it will be there. It'll be there for you, ready to welcome you home. Now, living in safety and prosperity, is time perhaps to consider the opportunity in this virtually unparalleled period of Jewish history in finishing today from the Torah to your table the Parsha begins with the words which brings us back to this end and certainly to consider you are standing this day, all of you, before the Lord, your God. So simple. In the book, Springs of Torah, there's a collection of writing called Butzina Dinehora. I just came across this. But it's interesting. This writing states, wherever the need arises to take action on behalf of Judaism, to wage the good fight for the glory of Hashem, the people all protest. Why choose me of all people? Leave it to the teachers, the rabbis, and the leaders of the community. They're in grave error. When the need arises to act before the Lord your God, you must be standing, all of you, ready for action and not be content to leave the responsibility to your leaders. I'm going to take those words to heart as I enter synagogue, this Rosh Hashanah, And think, what is my role? Let's share that thought together. Shana tova u'mituka from Yerushalayim. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.